If you have your Bible at home and if you have your Bible in the room, I would like for you to open it, please, to the Gospel of Luke, chapter number 20. I want to show you a verse that got my attention just the other night. I've been reading through Luke's Gospel in my own Bible reading, and I read a verse that made me stop and think, and it's going to be the springboard for our sermon time together, our Bible study time together this morning. In Luke chapter 20, and in verse number, in fact, let's go back in verse number 17, and then I want us to look at verse number 18. Jesus is comparing himself to a stone, and he's quoting a passage out of the Old Testament book of Psalms, the 118th chapter, and notice what he says. Then Jesus looked at them and said, Who, what then is this that is written? The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. And so he's comparing himself to a stone, and he's saying, the religious leaders have all rejected me. And yet I'm not only a stone, I'm the cornerstone. I am the foundation. Now, we all know that when a house is built, the most important part is the foundation. If you have a strong foundation, you can build a strong house. But if you have the wrong foundation or a weak foundation, that house won't stand. And so he is comparing himself here to the Old Testament prophecy of the Messiah being the cornerstone. Now, look at verse 18, because this is what got my attention. Whoever falls on that stone will be broken, but on whomever it falls, it will grind him to powder. Most of the translations say, whoever this stone falls on, that person will be crushed. And so I read that the other day, and I'm thinking, okay, Jesus is the stone, and he's telling us that if we fall on him, that we'll be broken. But if we don't fall on him and one day he falls on us, then we'll be crushed. And I thought, well, I would rather be broken than to be crushed. But then I started thinking, what does it mean to be broken? What does it mean to fall on Jesus? First of all, to fall on Jesus is talking about when a person comes to Jesus Christ to get saved. We receive him, we repent of our sins, we're born again, and now he's living in our heart. So we have fallen on Jesus. Salvation is an event. It happens in a moment in time. But after that event takes place, another process begins. And this process is called the process of brokenness. Jesus said, if you fall on me, it's understood he's going to save us, but he's also going to break us. The question is, what is brokenness? Well, I've come up with a little definition, may not be the best, but I think it kind of encapsulates and says what what brokenness really is. Brokenness is, is the result of a process that God uses to humble us, to purify us, and to make us more like Jesus. Brokenness is not the process itself. Brokenness is the result of the process. And so God says to us, when you come to Christ, you in repenting of your sins, calling on Christ and trusting in Him, in that moment, you're going to be saved. But also in that moment, a process of brokenness is going to begin in your life. Very much like a wild horse is broken before it can be ridden, God says, as my children, you're going to have to be broken before you can be of use to me. Now, we think about broken from what? Well, 
When, when we, when, before God got a hold of us, or even right after we first got saved, we had a lot of qualities in our lives that were pretty unattractive, actually. And they just don't belong in the life of a child of God. In fact, I've written down some of these qualities. I could have written down many more. But just think about and just ask yourself, do you have any of these qualities in your life? We were strong-willed. We were stubborn, rebellious, hard-headed, prideful, combative. We were driven. We were selfish. We've got all the answers and nobody else sees it quite right because they don't see it quite like we do. And even in our service of God, think back to when you first got saved and now you want to do something for God. You want to teach a class or you want to sing in the choir. You want to do something for God. And so, but in the early days, how did we even try to serve God? Largely, didn't we rely on our own personality? Didn't we rely on our own knowledge, what we know, or our own experience? Or maybe if we're wanting to climb some ladder out there, don't we rely many times on our own connections? I mean, if you're in need of a job, don't you kind of look for people who can help you get the job? And so, so even early on, we have all of these qualities. Now, the fact is, even after we've been saved for many years, we can still struggle with being stubborn, obstinate, combative, argumentative, hard-headed, and all these things. But the process of, in the process of breaking us, God says, what I've got to do to you is exactly what a rider does to a horse. I'm not going to weaken you, but I am going to break you. And in the breaking, pro I'm going to break you, God says, so that I can remake you so that I can remake you into the image of Jesus. Now, these qualities that I've just mentioned, I want to say some of those again. Stubborn, hard-headed, rebellious. I mean, all these things. God says, I want those things out of your life because not only are they unattractive in your, in your human relationships, but God says they are offensive to me. I'll tell you another thing that God wants to break us of, harshness. You know, some people just have a harsh spirit. And, and you talk to them, and boy, they just, they, just, they just wound up tight, and there's a harshness about them. And we all have that sometimes. Anytime you notice that in your life, you need to rest assured God is going, he's in the process of breaking you of that. Just like radiation. If you've ever had cancer and you've been through radiation treatments, you know that the doctor will show you that the tumor has been located. Here are the cancer cells. And so the radiation is going to target those cells so that those cells can be destroyed. Well, in us, God sees unhealthy cells, these things I've just mentioned and many other qualities. And God says, what I've got to do, I've got to target that because it doesn't belong in the life of a believer. It is not attractive. It is not becoming to you. It is not winsome. It's going to limit your effectiveness in the body of Christ. And while it is unattractive to you, God says, it's, it's worse from my perspective. It's offensive. And so God sets out to break us. Now, here's the question. The question is, how does God break us? If I were going to try to do a whole sermon on that, we could just have a long list. Here's how God, the circumstances of life, the painful experience, all these things. But what I want us to focus on today is one of the primary ways that God will break his people so that we can be more like Christ so that we can have a softness and a graciousness and a tenderness and a kindness and not this hard shell that God says, I can't use that. That doesn't belong in your life. One of the ways that God breaks us is by getting us in situations where we are alone. 
where we are alone. Now, that said, if you'll turn to the Old Testament, book of Genesis, chapter number 32, I cannot think of a better example in all of the Bible of a person who had some of these, these qualities. He was driven. He was highly motivated. We would say he was, he was an early bird. He was, he was up early and he was working hard and he was striving and he was motivated and he was highly driven. And yet God looked at that and says, yes, all that's true, but he's not depending on me. He's not trusting in me. He, he's, he's tricky. He's conniving. He's dishonest. He's deceptive. And God says, I've got to break this man. Who are we talking about today? We're talking about a man named Jacob. He was Abraham's grandson. You know the way it goes, Abraham, Isaac, and then Jacob. Now, what do we know about Jacob? Well, we know, first of all, that he was a twin. And his brother, who was older, born just before he was, was named Esau. And we know that their parents were Isaac and Rebekah, and they were good, God-fearing people. So these two boys grew up in a good home, but I'll say this about the home they grew up in. It was a somewhat dysfunctional home, dysfunctional family. Rebekah liked Jacob more than she liked Esau. Isaac liked uh, Esau more than he liked Jacob. So you've got two parents who are playing favorites with their kids. That's, that's dysfunctional. And so then now Jacob and Esau, they've grown up in a somewhat, dis, not, not highly dysfunctional, but a somewhat dysfunctional family. And I always remember when I'm thinking about dysfunctional families, Dr. Ed Young at Second Baptist Houston years ago said, as he was talking about dysfunctional families, he said, you need to understand this. All families are dysfunctional. It's just a matter of how dysfunctional. It's just a matter of degrees. And so these boys have grown up in a somewhat dysfunctional family. Now Jacob gets old enough to have a wife and he marries not one, but two wives. Each one of those wives had an assistant, what we would call an assistant. And so Jacob ends up having children from his two wives and from those two other ladies. So he's got, now he's got kids from four different women. That's what I would call fairly dysfunctional, right? That's not how God meant that to be. Well, since Jacob was the youngest son, he had another problem. He was envious of Esau because he knew that in that day, the birthright went to the oldest son. And so Jacob thought, if I could just get the birthright, if I could just figure out a way to get Esau to give me the birthright so that all those responsibilities could come to me. And so one day Esau, who was a man of the field, he went out hunting the animals in the game and preparing the food. He came in and he was exhausted and he was tired and there was there was Jacob in the home and, and, and Esau said, oh, I'm so hungry, I don't think I'm gonna make it, I'm about to die. He said, could you please make me a bowl of stew? And Jacob, instead of just making the stew for his, for his brother said, I tell you what, I'll make you a bowl of stew if you'll give me your birthright. Well, Esau said to Jacob, what good is my birthright when I'm about to die? If you'll give me the stew, I'll give you my birthright. They exchanged that. Well, Esau ate his food, he, re he refreshed, he got strong again. Days went by and he thought, what did I do? I just gave my birthright away. So now he's angry that he gave his birthright away. More time goes by, their father Isaac is about to die. It was customary in this day that the father would pronounce a blessing over all of his children before he died and a special blessing over the firstborn. And so Isaac says to Esau, Esau, go out into the field, kill an animal, bring it back, prepare it just like I like it and bring it to me. And when you do that, I'm going to put the blessing on you. Well, Rebecca, remember now, Rebecca likes Jacob the best. It's dysfunctional. And so she said, Jacob, come here. Your father's about to give the blessing to Esau, but I want him to give the blessing to you. And so I want you to dress up in some of your brother's clothes 
And I will prepare a little meal here together and you go in and you play like your Esau. He's old, your dad can't see, he can't hear well. He's gonna think you're Esau. He's gonna pronounce the blessing on you. And that's exactly what happened. And then Esau comes in from the field after seeing his brother Jacob get the blessing. And Esau is, what's happened? I'm the firstborn. I've already lost my birthright, and now I have lost the blessing. Now, turn back to chapter 27, and I want you to see something very interesting here, what uh, Esau did when he found out that Jacob now has has cheated him twice in verse 41. So Esau hated Jacob because of the blessing with which his father blessed him. And Esau said in his heart, the days of mourning for my father are at hand. Then I will kill my brother Jacob. In other words, I'm not going to kill Jacob while my dad's still living. But as soon as he dies, Jacob is done because he's cheated me twice. And the words of Esau, her oldest son, were told to Rebekah. So she sent and called to Jacob. That's her favorite son, the younger son, and said to him, surely your brother Esau comforts himself concerning you by intending to kill you. Now, therefore, my son, obey my voice, arise, flee to my brother Laban in Haran, and stay with him a few days until your brother's fury turns away. Well, Haran is modern day either northern Syria or Turkey. And so he, she says, what I want you to do, Jacob, is leave Israel and go to our neighboring country. And stay there for just a few days. Your brother will cool down. Then you can come back and be with the family. And so Jacob took his mother's advice. He left Israel. He goes to Haran. But it wasn't for a few days. Jacob was gone for over 20 years. Over 20 years. And during these years, he meets his two wives, Rachel and Leah. He meets their assistants. He has children. By the time we get to chapter 32, he has 11 sons and he has one daughter. And not only that, he has been blessed and prospered by God in absolutely amazing ways. Back in, you know, in Bible times, they didn't have stocks and bonds and bank accounts. What they had was livestock, land, property, and he had all of that in abundance. And so God has blessed him in a great way. But if you look in chapter 31, at the end of the 20 years in this other country, this neighboring country, God comes to Jacob. And God is in the process now of sending Jacob back home, back to Israel. Chapter 31 in verse 3. Then the Lord said to Jacob, return to the land of your fathers and to your family, and I will be with you. So God makes it very clear. Jacob, your time in Haran is up. It is time for you to go home. And so Jacob, wanting to obey God, did just that. He set out to go back to his homeland, but he knew this. In order to get back to his home, he would have to pass through the land where Esau and his family now were living. And so Jacob thought, man, it's been 20 years, but he said he was going to kill me, and I bet he's still angry with me. And so if you look in verse number, if you look in verse number, uh, in chapter 32, after he has started his journey back home, and in verse number seven, it says, so Jacob was greatly afraid, and Jacob was distressed. And so he's afraid, he's distressed, he's concerned, and so he begins the process now of going back to Uh, Israel. Now, remember, Jacob thinks Esau is going to kill him. And so he comes up with an idea. What I've got to do, I've got to to calm my brother down. I've got to kind of appease him. I've got to try to soften his spirit and win him over. So he has his huge family, all these livestock. So he divides it up in what we would call groups or droves or companies. And he designates a leader for each drove. And he says this, 
When we pass through that area where Esau lives, when we come to Esau, I want you to say to him, this is all for you. This is a gift from your brother Jacob. He loves you so much and he wants you to have this. And so they go to Esau and they start giving Esau all these gifts, one after another, one after another. Well, as they're getting closer to the place where Esau lived, it's about to be Jacob's time to pass through the area where Esau was. And Jacob's thinking, man, my brother's mad. He's mad at me. I stole his birthright. I cheated him out of his blessing. And, and, and he's, he's thinking he's already made a commitment. He's going to kill me. And he is afraid. And think about this. Jacob has been living with this fear for over 20 years. And so God is getting him ready now to meet his brother. Now, that said, look down in verse 22 because we read something very interesting here. It says, and he arose that night and took his two wives, his two female servants, and his 11 sons and crossed over the ford of Jabbok. That is the the shallow part of the Jabbok River. And it says, then he took them, sent them over the brook, and sent over all that he had. So now Jacob has not only sent all these groups, all these companies, all these livestock. He had kept his family closest to him, right? Our family is what's nearest and dearest to us. And so Jacob kept his family close to him. But now at this point, he's sending the family on ahead of him. Verse 24. I read this the other night. And it it just spoke to me. Notice what it says. Then Jacob was left alone. For the first time in his life, he was alone. He hadn't been alone growing up. Had a brother, had two parents. When he moved to Haran, he was shortly alone, but he got married. All these families just growing, growing, growing. He's always with people, always got his family there. But he came to a place in his life where he was all alone. And in that process of being alone, what happened? God broke Jacob. In fact, if we read on in chapter 32, I want to save this until next week. But we read about this wrestling match that Jacob had with God and and how even though Jacob lost the physical match, he won a great spiritual victory by learning that it was in his weakness that he could be strong and that he could find his strength. Now, you still listen and say amen, because I know that's a lot of Bible that I just gave right there. The whole point of this sermon is this. When we find ourselves alone in life, we're going to turn to somebody or to something to comfort us. We are. It's just human nature. We're going to do that. Remember what Jesus said. He who falls on me will be broken. Now, before I even get to the next part of this sermon, I want to just say this right now. To those of you here today who feel alone, in your aloneness, the wisest thing that you could do would be to fall on Jesus. He will catch you. He will comfort you. He will break you. And he will remake you into the person that he wants you to be. You know, if you think about in the Bible, all the people that God used in great and mighty ways, I mean, really, some what you would call, you know, the main characters of the Bible. If you trace their story back far enough, you find that in almost every case, if not in every case, that before God used these people in great ways, he got them alone. And when he got them alone, what did he do? He began a process of breaking them and making them into the people that he wanted them to be. Now, when I talk about being alone, I think the first thing we think about is, okay, I'm alone. There's nobody else in this room. I'm in a room and I'm all by myself. Well, that's one type of aloneness. But there are many different ways a person can be. You you can be today surrounded by 12 family members 
and feel all alone. There are different ways you can be alone. I think about, for example, in the Old Testament, Noah. Noah was alone in his calling. Think about Noah. God had told Noah to build an ark because God was going to send a flood on the earth. Now, can you imagine what Noah thought? God built an ark. What is an ark? It's a big boat. God, why do I need a boat? You need a boat because there's going to be a flood. God, what's a flood? A flood's when the rain gets really bad and it, you know, we know what a flood is here, but, but Noah didn't know what a flood was back then. But he said, I'm going to send a flood. Think about this. In Noah's day, it had never rained. Up until this time, God had watered the earth from the bottom up. The water came up, but God said, no, I'm going to change it. Now I'm going to send rain down from heaven, so build an ark. I'm going to destroy the earth. And Noah's out building that ark for, day, for days, weeks, months, years, decades. Now, Noah wasn't alone. He had family. He had neighbors. He had friends. And don't you know they thought he had completely lost his mind doing something like this? He was alone in his calling. Have you ever felt like God has put something on your heart to do. Maybe you read the Bible and here's and it just God just puts it in your heart and you say, you know what, I think God's telling me to do this. I'm gonna do it and you step out to do it and everybody thinks you're nuts. Everybody thinks you're crazy. Why are you doing Or maybe the opposite. Maybe God says, no, I don't want you to do this. And so you don't do whatever. And everybody's like, why aren't you doing this? You're alone in your calling and you're being misunderstood by your friends. So you're not alone physically, but you're alone in your thoughts and in your mind and in your heart because you feel like I'm doing what I feel like God wants me to do and nobody's on the page with me. I think about Joseph. We know the story of Joseph in the book of Genesis, how how he eventually became the prime minister of Egypt. But before he did, we read that he was there in Egypt alone in his surroundings. He's imprisoned for a crime he never committed, but he's alone for years. He's alone. And God was praying. I think about Moses. Moses was alone in his circumstances. He had been, he had killed a man thinking he was doing the right thing. God had called him to deliver Israel from Egypt. He killed an Egyptian. He thought people would be proud of him. Thought God would be proud of him. No, Moses ends up on the backside of the desert for 40 years. But at the end of that time, God spoke to him out of the burning bush and revealed his will and plan for his life. He was alone. What I'm saying is when you're alone, it's not, when you find yourself in a situation like that, it's not that your life is over. It's that God is using this to reset your life for the next leg of the journey. He is breaking you so that he might make you and remake you and teach you to fall on him, to turn to him. I think about in the New Testament, Paul. I mean, there's never been a more effective Christian. Nobody loved God more than Paul. And yet Paul said at the last letter he ever wrote, he said, at my last defense, no one stood with me. Everybody forsook me. He was alone in his sufferings. Think about John, the apostle John, one of the original 12 disciples. When he got really old in life, up in his 90s probably, he's alone on an island off the Aegean Sea, the island of Patmos. He's there, the Alcatraz of the day, imprisoned because of his faith in Jesus Christ. He's alone in his old age. But what happened when he was alone? God gave him the book of Revelation. He gave him the the greatest vision anybody's ever had about how the world would one day end. And so I'm saying all that today to say when we find ourselves alone, it's not the end. It's just an adjustment. It's just God getting us ready for the next leg of the journey. And here we find Jacob alone in his anxiety, alone in his fear, alone in his distress, alone in his emotions, alone in his thoughts, and yet in his time of being alone, what did he do? He turned to God. And what I'm saying today, when we're alone, we're going to either turn to God or we're going to turn to somebody else or something else. And if we don't turn to God, we're going to end up falling. Now,
all of us here today can relate, I'm sure, to times in life where we felt like God was, was breaking us of, of something. And as, as I was thinking about, you know, this, this idea of, of being broken, Jesus said, fall on me and you'll be broken. And, and we read about Jacob in an Old Testament sense, falling on God. It's just an amazing thing. I want to ask you these questions today because if you can answer yes to any of these questions, or if I can answer yes in my own life for any of these questions, I can assure you that God, just like that radiation, is going to target that cancer cell or that tumor. God is going to target this in your life in one way or another. And it may be by getting you in a situation. Your surroundings are different. Your circumstances are different. You're alone. See, see how you answer any of these questions. Are you one of those people who tries to control every situation? You know, we read with Jacob here, he was praying to God back in chapter 32, and he said, oh, God, you know, deliver me, help me, save me from my brother Esau. So that way we would say, you're doing good, Jacob, to pray to God. But even after he prayed to God, he's still sending all these other gifts. He's thinking, I got to do my part. I've still got to appease him. So at that point, Jacob's not broken, but he's, he's breaking because he's at least turning to God. Are you one of those people who tries to control every situation? Number two, do you have a harsh personality? Do you have a harsh personality? Because if so, God will target that and God will seek to, to break that into your life. And then number three, when a crisis happens, do you turn to God or do you turn to somebody or something else? You know, in psychology and psychiatry and other fields, they, they refer to separation anxiety. Kid typically gets out, kid goes to school, first day of school, never been away from his parents. He's at school, parents aren't there, kid's nervous, separation anxiety, he's, his parents aren't there, he misses, he's, he, you know, he misses his parents. That's normal for a kindergartner. But you know, when you get older, and certainly when you get grown, and certainly if you've been saved for a while, you're still human. And sometimes in life, you can still experience separation anxiety. What is separation anxiety for, for, the, for our purposes today? Separation anxiety is the anxiety that a person feels. Now listen to this. When they're separated from somebody that they were depending on more than they were depending on God. That's why God says, that's why Jesus said in this passage, if you will fall on me, I will catch you. I will comfort you. I'll break you. I will, I will begin a process of remaking you more and more and more into the image of Jesus Christ. And so today, I encourage you, you know, if you, some of those things I mentioned earlier, if you say, you know, John, I've got, I've got some of that in me. And I know those qualities are not attractive. And I know that's not Christ-like. And I know it's not, it's not good for me. It's not good for my family. It's not good for those who are close to me. And it's not good for my witness for Jesus Christ. Well, I would encourage you, to fall on Jesus and let him begin the process of remaking you into the person that he wants you to be. Amen.